0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host Philip Fleming warden of Cranmer Hall and in this season of Talking Theology it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo, and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. How might medieval history help us rethink contemporary assumptions about science? How does being made in the image of God affirm our vocation to creativity? How do poetry and science belong together? How do contemplation and imagination contribute to scientific endeavour? And how can churches recognise science as God's good gift, and not just an obstacle to be overcome? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Tom McLeish. Tom is Inaugural Professor of Natural Philosophy in the Department of Physics at the University of York and he's also affiliated to the University Center for Medieval Studies Tom has written several books, including most recently, The Poetry and Music of Science. And our title today is Created for Creativity. What is the role of imagination in scientific exploration? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Talking Theology.
1: Thank you, Philip, very much indeed. I am absolutely delighted to be here and I should say so excited about this podcast series that you're doing in collaboration with the E project.
0: Tom, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey, your scientific background, but also the, the path that you've taken in recent years to a more interdisciplinary approach.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I guess I'm one of those sort of scientists who knew that their core interest revolved around science when they were about three and a half. You know, I remember as a as a child just going all quivery at the idea of an experiment when my grandmother gave me a microscope that her grandfather had, had a Victorian field microscope. I took it to the woods and dragged out little insects and looked at insect wings and leaves and blood cells when I was feeling brave and had a sharp enough pin, as little children do. And and then I got a telescope when I was about ten and started looking at the stars. And of course, this was the decade of the 1960s. And, you know, people were landing on the moon and things like that. So, so you know, it was a very exciting time to be a child. But right from the beginning, I always had very broad interests. I love story, I love literature, I love writing, I love, and music has always been really central. So so in a sense, in uh, an urge to glue back together or build bridges between the sort of fragmented rooms of thought or islands of thought we call our disciplines. It's always been there and I managed to very lucky. I did a French A-levels as well as the sciences due to being a fantastic school that introduced me to the philosophy of Camus and Sartre which was so cool when you're 18. So I really enjoyed that and then when I became a young Christian in the late teens really early 20s which is when I was also of course thinking seriously about a scientific career I remember getting so excited when I realised that the Christian mind and actually getting our minds round the Bible is going to require just, for example, every brain cell that I'm devoting to to science. Of course, you're thinking about that's also an interdisciplinary endeavour. So that's where it's gone and, and briefly my science career has always been interdisciplinary itself so i started off in what's now called soft matter physics but it's physics of literally soft stuff gels and polymers and plastics and foams uh, and uh, so working with chemists and chemical engineers for a long long time and then more recently i've been working because of that on the physics of living systems because life is also made of soft stuff mostly as you've probably noticed and that's been fascinating too so so the interdisciplinarity has really branched out of working across the sciences now into the sciences and the social sciences and the humanities as well.
0: Tell us about the role that you do at the moment and what are the things that delight you about the variety that that role brings?
1: Yes well my current role is the first new chair we think in natural philosophy which is as it were the old word for the physical sciences in 200 years, which the University of York has created. It's in the physics department, but I spend about half my week in humanities departments thinking about the relationship between humanities and the sciences. And I actually got there by, as it were, diving off a springboard close to you in, in, in Durham. I had the great privilege of being pro vice chancellor for research. Where, of course, it's a hugely privileged position where I get to go around every department, you know, engineering on Monday, history on Tuesday, English on Wednesday, you know, and, and uh, find out all their new ideas. So that gave me all sorts of routes into supporting colleagues, thinking in interdisciplinary ways, which um, I found a lot of folk at Durham particularly good at, and I've taken that into York. So, although I still work across physics and biology for my science part, so that one of the projects that actually began in Durham that's continuing in York is in medieval studies. So, York University has the lasting, longest standing interdisciplinary centre for medieval studies in the country, maybe the world, it's 50 years old. And so, I brought a large project on medieval science there, which began in Durham when Giles Gaspar was Professor of History, and I realised that in order to understand the mathematics, the geometry, the early physics of the high 13th century natural philosophy, actually requires both the sort of humanity skills you get from Latinists and historians and theologians and the sort of skills one gets if one has a scientific formation, mathematics, geometry, physics. And it's only by creating teams that we can really sort of open up the nut of some of this early scientific thinking, which has been largely brushed aside in the history of of science. So that's proving absolutely fascinating. We're writing uh, uh, together now a six-volume edition of the works of an extraordinary polymath called Robert Grosseteste, who became Bishop of Lincoln in the 1230s, but who wrote about all these things, wrote wonderful treatises on line colour and uh, astronomy. And just a one interdisciplinary delight that I've learned from this, which was a huge and rich surprise. You see, we scientists and engineers and mathematicians, very interested in this we'd love to do this we, we initially thought we would be doing it as it were to give our humanities colleagues a helping hand over some of the tough math in the same way that they were giving us a heavy a helping hand over the latin i mean goodness you know we um, can't be, begin the last thing we thought was that we would we would get new science out of it however we are on our about our 10th scientific paper brand new science inspired by reading scientific treaties in Latin from the 1220s. It it just keeps happening, which has taught us a lot about scientific imagination, creativity, history, and of course the intellectual milieu of those centuries is not one where anyone could even think about the meaning of a conflict between science and religious faith, because one sits within the other. So yeah, that gives you a little insight into, into, I think, probably my favourite interdisciplinary project.
0: You've articulated the relationship and this highly creative relationship between history and science in in the research project that you've articulated. But I know one of the things that you've written about, researched about, is the relationship between art, music, and science. Uh, and that's our particular theme today in this conversation. I want to just go back to first principles, if we might, or some of the assumptions that are made. Why is it sometimes perceived that science sits on one side, then there's imagination, creativity on the other, and never the twain shall meet? Where, where does that premise or assumption come from and and just talk us through why it's so flawed.
1: Yes well gosh there are books on this so I'll, I'll have to be brief. It's complicated and complex and long. I think if I start the story in, is not its real beginning, but in the early modern century, in the 17th century, where at the beginning of that century, you know, Francis Bacon gets going with a theological motivation for experimental science, and then and then other, you know, people Robert Boyle, Margaret Cavendish, a great philosopher of, of that century, criticises this. But people like Cavendish and John Donne and Milton, of course, find it perfectly natural to think poetically, even to write poems about science, to write novels. Margaret Cavendish wrote Blazing World, to encapsulate her argument, her warning against over-emphasis on an experimental method on its own as a truth deliverer. But by the end of that century, you've got the Royal Society gets going in the 1660s and develops a tradition that begins to banish the fancy, the imagination, the more creative poetic style of writing, and in its invention of the scientific journal and the philosophical transactions, Thomas Spratt, the uh, first biographer of the Royal Society or historian, its manifesto writer in 1666, has some hard things to say about observation only, how imagination does not have a place in in the sciences. And then, of course, that, that then grows throughout the next two centuries and gives rise to the sort of horror that writers like William Blake seem to have over rational discourse. Blake is the earliest attestation I can find of an articulation of the divergence of creativity with rational thought. He says, my business is not with Locke or with Newton. My business is to create. Uh, not, I don't, you know, I re-reason and rationality as if they were opposed. And then, of course, you get the romantic poets. And actually, in the 19th century, it's poetry that really takes its leave of scientific thought at the same point at which people like William Wordsworth and Samuel Coleridge are beginning to glimpse that science might give rise to a new inspiration of poetry and Wolfgang von Goethe looks while well, they look forward he looks back and says you know science and poetry have a common origin don't you understand and looks forward again to, with words and college where they might come together but no Edgar Allan Poe calls science that vulture and keats the natural philosophy that will unweave the rainbow and unknown the mind and remove all wonder from the world that's the accusation so that's where we got where we are. And I guess the 20th century instantiation, all is all of that is this social science of science, sociology of science, that pretends there's a thing called the scientific method and writes books about it. But scientists don't write about the scientific method. You know, if there were such a thing as the scientific method, I'm a I fellow of the Royal Society. I, I would have had a course in it, wouldn't I? Well, you know, no one ever. I never sat a course in the scientific method. No scientist I know has ever sat a course in the scientific method. So what does that tell you? It tells you that science isn't primarily methodological of course there are methods within it but there are methods for mixing oil paint that artists get taught there are methods for painting a sunset sky so of course there are methods in art and methods in science but it's not a methodological enterprise. Ooh, there's a pretense that it is. So the history of, of thought has gone in this contingent, divergent way. It didn't need to have gone that way, but it did. That's a brief summary. I didn't sound brief, I know, but believe me, the long version is much, much, much longer.
0: Now, in your book entitled The Poetry and Music of Science, you suggest that imagination is just as essential to the study of science as it is to the arts. I wonder how does the creative imaginative process differ between art and science, but perhaps significantly, how are they, how are they similar?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with how they're similar. And then we'll try and work out how they're different if you like. And I'd really like some help with this one because I keep getting stuck on this one, but, but here's where they're similar. Look, what are we trying to do when we do science? And a dull visionless disenchanted answer to that question is we're just gathering facts about the natural world. Well, yes, we are. But that's not the point. That's a means to an end. What we are trying to do in science is to build in our minds and reflect in our artifacts, a structure that bears the reflection of the natural world in such a way that we can understand the way the world works. So, obvious, take example. We look up at the sky, the moon, changes its position in the sky, night by night. It seems to be orbiting the earth at a more or less fixed distance. Why does it do that? What's going on here? When other things that we make move unsupported in the sky, like projectiles and footballs and things go up and come down. Well, Newton helped us to understand that. There's a gravitational field, which Einstein later helped us redefine as a curvature of space within which objects move in a space that they also curve or exercise a force within. And so we now have in our minds, you see, when I think of gravity, I think of space as a sort of, net i suppose that's that's deformed by objects within it and within which other other bodies move we can describe that in pictures we can describe it in mathematics that sort of model this beautiful mathematical and physical picture visual model or um, all of those at once is the goal of science so i could look inward to the cell and ask how it is inheritance happens. And then this wonderful story, it must be a molecule, maybe it's a periodic crystal, but what is it? There's a linear crystal, says Dilbrook, Del, And then we find DNA and we find that DNA is a molecule, a string-like molecule that encodes all life. And now we're, now we're beginning to understand how life works. Now, we can't read any of that off the data. We don't look in the sky and say, oh, there's an inverse square law of gravity. Any more than we can look into a, a cell and so say, "Look, there's DNA coding for coding for cells." that's it's obvious. No, we have to reimagine the universe first. We induce; we don't deduce. Uh, now, look what imaginative task could be greater than to reimagine the entire universe? So that is why it's not imagination is not a sort of side issue in science. It's the core process. <laughs> and uh, all the rest is there to support it and to refine that imagination. So that's why it's the same. I mean, just to gloss on that, poetry. Why is it ironic that the first disciplinary division in arts and science was science and poetry, when actually science is so poetic in this sense? You remember, everyone remembers here, from whatever language they come from, their, their poetry lessons at school. Right? And their teacher would, would explain why do poems have structure? You know why are they quatrains and sonnets and iambic pentameters and, and double doubloons or whatever? You know all sorts of names aren't there for I've just invented that one for a, a poetic form. Well, it's because it's because if you just write down the words that come to you when you are a poet, you just end up with a mess on the page, right? You just it's a mess. You need form to mould and constrain the content into something beautiful and coherent. Okay, so poetry is the, if you like, the outward force of imaginative creativity, meeting the inward forming capacity of form, of structure. Okay, what could call on the greater power of outward imagination than to reimagine the universe? And what could constitute the tighter form than to make that imagination fit the universe as we observe it? So in a way, doing science is like writing altogether the most enormous and wonderful and beautiful poem that was ever
0: written. Therefore, let's layer the question of faith onto this powerful case that you've made for imagination being an absolutely core discipline within the scientific enterprise. What contribution can the Christian faith bring to that imaginative exercise? What are the resources that that lay at the disposal of the person of faith who is seeking to induce the harmony the beauty the power of the universe
1: yeah well the answer is everything (laughs) absolutely everything why don't we start at genesis chapter one actually just to add a little biographical gloss to this it took me a number of years to work out. I mean, I know in this series you've explored so healthily questions that aren't the question that people like me get asked all the time, which is how do you reconcile your Christian belief with your scientific practice? Because isn't one just about faith and dogma, and the other about evidence-based, corrective hypothesis? belief? well, I was always uncomfortably asked that question because it didn't mean anything to me. And Of course, of course, like all your other correspondents, I realised that was because it falls into the class of the question: Have you stopped beating your wife yet? Do I say yes or no? I mean, no. I think the answer is I don't answer the question because the question assumes a world in which we do not live. It's that the real question. For me, the most important question, most fruitful question is what role does this gift we have of being able to do science? It's like a gift, it's like artistic gifts, like like gift of looking after families. What role does this gift have within the kingdom of God? What Jesus called the kingdom of God or within the story, the arc of the biblical story, the teleology, the Pope, long word, the purpose, right? The purpose of creation fall, incarnation, redemption, new creation. That's a big arc of our story together. But what does science play in that? What can I do to help? How can I give this talent back to God rather than bury it in the ground, as it so often is? So if I could take the question in that direction, how do I understand what being a scientist is? Now, without wanting to point too much to another book, the book I wrote before, Part music and Science is called Faith and Wisdom in Science. And the reason I wrote that book was because I had to write something that answered that question. What function does science perform within the kingdom of God? Rather than the apologetic one. And I found myself reading very different parts of the Bible than are normally brought to bear on questions of science and faith. I spent a lot of time in the Book of Job and the wisdom literature generally because it's the most nature-infused book. It's the most beautiful poem about nature from the whole of the ancient world, actually. But let's ask the question, how can we understand this creativity within science? And of course, the, the biblical story of the relationship between creator God, created humans, and the material creation is almost expecting this. Humans, for a start, do have a command to steward and, in that sense, dom- dominate the world. Underneath that, and before that mandate is given, the inimago dei idea is given. Humans are made in the image of God. Well, yeah, and of course, theologians have scratched their heads for centuries about what being made in the image of God is. What does it mean? What does it mean? We have the capacity for love, the capacity for emotion, passion for compassion and ethic. Perhaps it means morality. I'm sure it means all those things. But surely it must also mean some image of the first recorded action of God. The first recorded action is to create the whole world, the whole cosmos, and create human beings in God's image. So if God creates the world, in what sense might we expect God's image also to create in image? Well, of course, we don't create a world, only God creates a world. But maybe the created image of God, reflecting the glory and mind, and intent of the creator in image, might create an image of the world in order to assist in responding with their mandate to care for the actual world. Aha. Uh-huh. So I just used the language a few minutes ago, I think, of science creating an image of the world. That's what we create we, in science. We imagine we create an image of the, of the world. But it's an active, responsible image that we then use to care for others and educate others and ourselves and to look after the, the world that God creates. So I think the answer to your question, Philip, is that um, it's the best question ever asked is that when we've understood the theological triangle of creator, humans, created and material creation. We might understand how being made in the image of God works in that. Of course, we then need to think about spirit and Christology as well, but that that perhaps opens up a little door into purpose.
0: Sounds like you've articulated, Tom, this very big framework in which We both understand creative power as at the heart of our created world, but also the reason for that creative power, which is to be also effective stewards of that creation. I wonder how might that be brought into the life of a worshipping church and a worshipping Christian? How might that connect with perhaps my daily life, my response to God in Jesus Christ?
1: thank you what a lovely lovely question and one that is really much at the heart of the equipping christian leadership and age of science project too because we're in the business of connecting churches with this area of God's gift that has been so so long either ignored or just put into a little box marked apologetics in other words you know the only role science plays is to be an obstacle to mission so you know once in our mission week we can have a why science isn't a problem from a scientist who's a christian then we can park it and get on with you know i'm so i'm being we do that don't we no <laughs> if we're on the right track here then science and church Go together like plough and field, like, you know, fishing line and river. It's a natural partnership. So there are many ways in which we, we can do this. One is just purely for churches to be, and they are often quite natural catalysts for local interest in science. Can be no more than that. If the church and our world had taken the Christian positive framing of science seriously rather than invented this conflict myth thing then we might have helped our science and our politics at large take science out of its so it's only for weird people and experts you know back into a common shared delight that you know because of the 19th century and their families you know break that naturalists. Um, uh, Robert Boyle had a lovely vision in the 18th, 17th century for ordinary lay observation little notebooks. Everyone could enjoy science in the same way that everyone could enjoy art or music or whatever it is, whatever they like. So there's that pure and simple. It doesn't have to be particularly theological. It can just be warming people to being more confident with engaging with science. And of course, there are important social consequences of doing that. Because once you've enabled a population, a community, regional, local, national, to be more comfortable with science and appropriate it and engage with it, they can engage with it critically. So when it comes to vaccines or when it comes to climate change, you don't have this you know, cons- have less of, perhaps, I hope, this conspiracy theory nonsense that them and us, it's the experts and us, will be this power game play again. You have a much more confident possession. Then, of course, we can go on and talk about materials for for worship and prayer. We can talk about parish or local church support, supporting their scientists in their universities nearby or their research centres, just as much as they support their nurses and doctors in the hospitals or their teachers in their schools or their parents at homes or their business managers or care professionals. It's all part of, of that package too. And then maybe beyond that, there are practical ideas like the eco-church movement that um, Arash and Ruth Valeria have started in the UK. It's lovely to, to notice a increasing number of our global partners from E Class using this natural affinity of churches and science as springboards for doing really creative things in their localities towards environment, towards species protection, towards carbon reduction, all sorts of practical things like that. And those are just the beginning of of trails that we could wander down for many, many, many
0: miles. You spoke earlier, Tom, about your first forays into scientific endeavor, discovery, the first telescope, the first experiences of kind of examining the world. But you also spoke about your own early engagements with the arts and your French studies. I wonder, looking back now on the journey that you've taken in terms of engaging science, art and understanding the the beautiful coherence that they have within God's world, How does this land with your own personal faith, perhaps your own personal worship, your prayer, your own discipleship? How does this feed you? How does it inspire you? How does it nourish you? Mm, Thank you.
1: Well, one thing I find runs beautifully parallel between Christian thought and scientific thought is I find both amazingly fruitful and both divergent rather than convergent. They lead me into pastures new all the time. You know, you never know what's coming next. I I wouldn't have been able to tell you five years ago that my current project in science has been looking at the physics of how silkworms makes condensed silk fibers out of the, the sticky fluid in their insides, which has a poetry all its own nor would I have been able to tell you that I was thinking deeply about science, theology and poetry and how poetry is taking a bigger joint role in both my personal reflection and prayer life, I'm finding, and in the way I think about science. That might help just illustrate that one just a little bit. And I think it's connected the two in that way. I'm also thinking right now, thinking, reflecting, but also experiencing thinking about what contemplation means afresh. I'm not very good at that. I tend to rush around a bit. My mind and my life is a bit busy and zoomy like all of us. And I don't give myself enough time to contemplate. And that's that's a problem for science because actually, One of the ideas that's popped out of this science and art and creativity project is that if scientists, if as scientists, we were better experienced at the art of contemplation, I don't mean necessarily religious or spiritual contemplation, I just mean that we'd be better at science because there's a deep contemplative gaze into nature that's really important to allow the workings of the mind to do this great reconstruction thing I talked about before. But of course, when you're in the contemplative world and you're also articulating to yourself science as vocation and calling, then the contemplation of the physical world becomes a sort of true worship and i suppose that the deepest level of answering your question is to teach myself really to take on board to practice what i preach <laughs> you see if i really have got to the point mentally cognitively where i'm saying that science is both a gift and a vocation and a calling, that it sits not in some sort of dialogue with religious faith it sits as a practice entirely within the kingdom of God, then it can be accompanied by spiritual reflection, by thankfulness, by prayer, by the Holy Spirit, by all that, all that, and that brought into a personal and, in some ways, sometimes a corporate worship.
0: Tom McLeish, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology.
1: Thank you so much. We've enjoyed it very much. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cran Mahal within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Cran Mahal, please visit cranmahal.com.